0: Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. Today, I need to give an update about the whole TerraSoft duty-to-warn thing. I've learned a lot of stuff recently. I've consulted with some some experts on this. I, I did an episode in which I talked about how our duty-to-warn uh, uh, requirements have, have changed recently due to, due to some recent case law in Washington state and i think i think it affects people in other states too and i in that episode i was talking about how these case law situations were completely screwing up our duty to warn and making us have to report all sorts of stuff and and it was uh, ridiculous and so i after talking and consulting with some experts on this i understand it much better now and so i i want to talk about that today partially to disseminate the information but also partially because it helps me to understand this better when i actually make an episode about it <laughs> so today i'm going to talk fully about terrasoff i i i finally just sat down and said okay i i need to actually learn the whole terrasoff story for those of you outside of psychotherapy you're like what are you talking about this is basically about therapists a requirement that they protect the public from their client. So if they have a client who is dangerous, what do they do? Because therapists are supposed to uphold confidentiality, right? Well, there are times when we are supposed to violate that confidentiality to protect other people. If our client was threatening to kill someone or something, well, I and many of my colleagues used to have a very simple understanding of this whole thing because there was a very simple guideline that we followed that we called Tarasoft. But recently, particularly in Washington state, there's, there's been a case law where judges and courts and Supreme courts have ruled in such a way that they're like, well, yeah, sure. Tarasoft is great, but there, there are other situations in which you also have to report in which and if you don't, you'll be fined. You'll be found negligent and liable. And so, so anyway, t- today I'm going to talk fully about Teresoff because I, I just thought, well, maybe this is the episode where I I really just do a deep dive into Teresoff and really figure that one out. Um, because I understood it for the most part, but I didn't really understand the, the backstory very well. I'm also going to talk about the Peterson case, which is a 1983 case from Washington State that. I've referred to in other episodes, but we we didn't know how that was going to be applied because there hadn't been a test case for it, but there was a test case and it was the Volk, which is the big scary case that came out recently. I'm also going to talk about the Senate Bill 5800. I'm going to talk about duty to warn and the larger requirement for us, which is duty to protect. I'm going to talk about how to fulfill our duties to warn and, and to protect and How to avoid lawsuits. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, I'll send you instructions on how to access hundreds of premium episodes like this one. And remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, people. Thanks for becoming a patron. Super cool of you. There is currently about 600 of you, which is just overwhelmingly gratifying. It's it's wonderful to interact with you guys and... Email and you know Facebook, blah blah, blah, and I'll 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 see you guys at the live event January twenty seven. Okay, Terasov. So I'm I don't know how to pronounce this first name here, but I'm going to give it a try. I think it's Prasenjit Padar. Prasenjit Padar from Bengal, India. So he was a student. Prasenjit Padar was a student from India. At Berkeley, UC Berkeley, as a graduate student in 1967. So this goes this goes way back to 1967. Summer of Love, uh, Beatles album, uh, Sgt. Pepper's* comes out. Long time ago. In 1968, when the White Album came out, <laughs> Prasenjit Padar met Tatiana Tarasov. Tatiana Tarasov, and they started a date. So we have Prasenjit Padar. From India, he meets Tatiana Tarasov, who I believe at least was from Russian descent. They start to date. And pretty quickly, she decides to break up with them. She's like, eh, I don't know if this is working for me. And Tatyana Tarasov breaks up with Prasenjit Padar. Well, I'm just going to call him Padar from now on. So Padar, he... Began, he was upset by this. He did not like the fact that she broke up with him, and so he began to stalk her. And he also started to have mental problems. He became very depressed. He was crying a lot. He actually had some disorganized speech at some times for for a number of months. And he kept trying to get her back. And he kept calling her. And he you know followed her around and. She kept trying, Tatiana Tarasov, kept trying to say to Padar, look, you know, I don't want to be with you, and just please stop bothering me. And then a year later, in 1969, when Let It Be came out, he sought psychological, Let It Be, wait, was that 70? Could have been, uh, well, at the very least it was Abbey Road. Um, Padar sought psychological assistance, which is great, good for Padar. So, Padar became a patient of Dr. Lawrence Moore, a psychologist at UC Berkeley. In the summer of 69, it was the summer of 69... Sorry, it just has to be sung. I mean, you know, to my Canadian fans out there. Um, So, uh, in the summer of 69, Padar told Dr. Moore about his intent to kill Tatiana Tarasov. So, Padar is like, I have thoughts about wanting to kill my ex-girlfriend, Tatiana. Now at this point, there's, there's not a case law called Tarasov, obviously. So at this point in the sixties, the ethics and legal uh, procedures or understanding around mental health professionals, responsibility to protect the public was, wasn't really understood. And the general rule of, of confidentiality was the norm, was the standard of care. And so, so Dr. Moore is hearing his patient talk about wanting to kill someone. And he's like, well, I, I, I can't break confidentiality. So we don't know what Dr. Moore was thinking at the time. And maybe there's been books written about this. I don't know, but we don't know what Dr. Moore was thinking at the time. But he's like, huh. So I have this patient who's threatening to kill his ex girlfriend. Um, I don't want him to do that, but I also have to uphold confidentiality. So, um, you know, and, and if I, if I break, if I violate that confidentiality, I could be sued by Padar. So uh, we don't know what Dr. Moore's thought process was, but I'm I'm guessing that was at least part of it. And Dr. Moore actually decided, well, something's got to be done because I I think, I think Padar is going to do something. So Dr. Moore actually called the police, so, this is something that I think I didn't know or forgot that the, the, the Tarasov case, it wasn't that he didn't do anything. It was that he, it was that he didn't call the victim. So, he just called the police, which I have to say is, in my mind, I think sufficient. If, if you have a patient who is threatening to kill someone and you're like, uh, I'm going to call the police. So, he calls the police and he told them that his patient was dangerous and suffering from a severe mental illness and he might harm someone and so and he also recommended that padar be civically committed since he was a dangerous person so he's like hey police officers i have this patient he's dangerous he's mentally ill and i think he should be committed i think you should detain him somehow so the police go to to padar and they detain him and they question him And after a short period of time, they determined that he appeared normal and rational and not a threat. So they released him. Dr. Moore's supervisor, Dr. Powell, Powelson ordered that Padar not be subject to further detention. So Dr. Dr. Moore had a supervisor that was like, uh, I think, I think this whole detaining of this patient is going a little too far. Let's stop that. Okay. So in October, 1969, so this is after the summer, right? Padar stopped seeing his psychologist. She stopped seeing Dr. Moore. Padar then befriended Tarasov's brother and moved in with him. So so Padar is like is like, you know, I'm gonna figure out a way to get back into Tatiana's life. And so he befriends Tatiana's brother and ends up moving in with him. So I don't know if Tatiana's brother knew that this what this guy was up to I'm guessing not but anyway in late October 1969 Padar carried out the plan he had confided to a psychologist and went found Tatiana Tarasov and stabbed and killed her very tragic event here Padar was caught and convicted of second-degree murder but The conviction was later overturned. I don't know why it wouldn't have been first degree, considering that he had been talking about it for a while. But anyway, convicted of second degree murder. But the conviction was later overturned on the grounds that the jury was inadequately instructed. (laughs) I love stuff like that. It's like, uh, what? And so Padar, now they were thinking about having another trial. But then they're like, how about you just go back to India and never come back? And so Padar is like, yes, that sounds great. So Padar was released and he returned to India. Okay, so that's that's the end of the story about Padar. What about Tarasov? Well, Tarasov's parents then sued Dr. Moore and various other employees of the clinic and the university, UC Berkeley. And it, it, it ended up in the California Supreme Court. So, you know, trial court, appeal court. Supreme Court, the California Supreme Court found that a mental health professional has a duty not only to a patient, but also to individuals who are specifically being threatened by a patient. And so the the California Supreme Court was like, you know, you people, you mental health professional people have a duty to protect the public from from your from your patient and the, the the way it was written was duty to protect and also duty to warn now what i've always been told is that Tarasov is a duty to warn thing but actually if you if you read the court precedent it's actually duty to protect meaning that not only do you have a duty to warn potential victims but you also have just a general duty to protect your uh, to protect the public from your patient. So this is this is an important uh, distinction because I was always told that you needed a, you needed a few things to happen in order for you to violate confidentiality. You needed to have your patient threaten to kill someone, not not threaten to punch them in the face, but threaten to seriously harm and or kill. So stabbing, shooting, pushing them off a cliff, this kind of stuff. So there had to be a threat, and there also had to be an identifiable victim. So the patient had to had to say, "I am going to go kill. I am going to go stab my ex girlfriend. I am going to go uh, push my father off of a cliff. I am going. You know, there has to be an identifiable person, or I am going to go get that my manager at, at work. I am going to blah blah blah. So if if you don't have both of those things, then you actually can't violate confidentiality, which was the way I was taught. But actually, when you go back to Tarasov, that that is part of it. They're like, look, um, the Supreme Court found that Dr. Moore should not only it was fine. It was good that he called the police, but they said that that wasn't enough, that what he should have done was call Tatiana Tarasov herself because the Supreme Court was thinking, well, if only if only Tatiana herself knew. Now, to me, I'm like, well, why is that? My responsibility as a as a therapist. Why isn't that the police's? How am I as a mental health professional supposed to protect the public from someone's behavior? I mean, the police are trained in this. They have the power to do it. They don't have laws of confidentiality. Doctor Moore called the police, and why didn't the police contact Tatiana Tarasov? I don't know. Maybe Doctor Moore didn't. Maybe Doctor Moore didn't tell the police about T- Tatiana Ter stuff. I don't know. But um, anyway, so the the Supreme Court was like, uh, we have a dead woman on our on our hands here, and we believe that the this psychiatrist in this clinic is partially to blame. And this set this precedent that was instantly became famous in the mental health in at the time, you know, in the early 1970s, that all mental health professionals were like, oh, wait, so there's this exception, this weird exception to confidentiality. Justin Tobriner wrote the famous holding of the majority opinion, quote, we conclude that the public policy favoring protection of the confidential character of patient psychotherapist communications must yield to the extent to which disclosure is essential to avert danger to others. The protective privilege ends where the public peril begins. So it's a great sentence there. The protective privilege ends where the public peril begins. So in other words, you're the conf, the 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 privilege of confidentiality ends where when the public is in danger. So this was new. This was a new, uh, you know, precedent. This was a new law. This was a new ethical understanding of our profession at the time, because at the time confidentiality was the rule, and it still is. Anyway, Justin Mo- Justice Justice Mosk was a dissenting. Uh, judge, and he said, um, he said that the rule in future cases, he said that the rule in future cases should be one of actual subjective prediction of violence on the part of the psychiatrist, which occurred in this case, not one based on objective professional standards, because predictions are inherently unreliable. So basically, Mosk is saying, when in the future, when Terasov is applied. You know, to other cases of questions of negligence on behalf of a mental health professional, there needs to be evidence that the psych that the mental health professional uh, has access to. So, so in other words, if if someone if you're if you're a mental health professional, so going back to what Mosk is recommending here, he's saying, look, if you're a mental health professional. And your patient doesn't indicate any, or, or, you know, indicates very minimal intent to harm other people, then, and then they later on harm someone, then you're not liable for that because you just don't have data to predict that your patient is going to do something. So what Mosk is saying here is, in future cases where Terasoft is is being applied, as you know, uh, the precedent upon which to find that a mental health professional is negligent. There needs to be data that the mental health professional has available to them so that they can predict that harm will happen and therefore take action to protect the public. The second thing that Mosk is saying here is that the psychiatrist notified the police who were presumably in a better position to protect Tatiana than she would be to protect herself. So what Mosk is saying here is, look, one of the ignored part of this, of this Tarasov, Dr. Moore situation, is that Dr. Moore did call the police, and that should be taken into consideration. That calling the police is not a small action. It's actually a pretty major action. And if a mental health professional thinks that their patient is in uh, you know, a danger to other people... If they call the police, that should be taken into consideration as as a um, as as I don't know the exact legal term, but as as evidence that the mental health professional was not negligent. Okay, Justice Clark was also dissenting and quoted a law review article that stated the very practice of psychiatry depends on the reputation in the community that the psychiatrist will not tell so justice clark so so when the terasov case was being decided by the california supreme court there were dissenting justices who were like look uh, we are very sorry that tatiana terasov was killed but w- we can't strip confidentiality from mental health professionals because the the field of of mental health depends on people believing that their mental health professionals will not tell other people what they say in, in the privacy of the sessions. So that's something that I didn't know. I didn't know that there was dissenting judges. And I also didn't know that even though Tarasov was ruled in a particular way by the California Supreme Court, the, the dissenting judges and their opinions will actually be taken into account in future cases, if that makes any sense. Okay. So, as of recent times, so for, after Tarasov happened, there, there was a lot of talk among mental health professionals. And what ended up happening was, because this is California Supreme Court, other states don't have to necessarily follow that precedent. But other states were starting to, other state organizations and mental health professionals in other states, including Washington State, started looking to tear us off in California and thinking, we might, you know, what's the law for us? What, that's California, what about us? Well, what a lot of states and a lot of therapists started to do was they started saying, well, how about we just establish a law? that helps guide us so that we know what to do in a situation like that. So we don't have to run into the situation blind. Let's, let's ask our state legislature to pass laws that, that govern our behavior. And therefore we know what law to follow. And so in 23 States, only 23 States, they adopted Tarasov like duty to warn language um, as a, as a statute as a state law that they that the legislature passed. In 10 other states, it it became common law supported by precedent. So another 10 other states, there are cases in that state that had similar rulings to Tarasov. In 11 states, the Tarasov duty to warn duty to protect mandate is a permissive duty. And in six states, there's no, no statutes and no case law to offer guidance. So when I read that, I just think, what's wrong with us as a profession <laughs> that we can't seem to get together and say, look, let's create a standard for all of us in the United States at least, and let's make all of our state legislatures pass a law or even maybe create a federal law or something, and let's lock this down. Uh, And I'll get more into that in a bit, because that's actually one of the recommendations that the experts have. So at the time, uh, going back to the early 70s, many in the mental health field predicted that Tarasoft would would open a floodgate of liability to mental health professionals, you know, because they're just like, wait, 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 so I can get sued if my patient does something dangerous that how do I, how do I predict whether or not a patient is going to do something? And so, and and there's very similar paranoia happening right now in Washington after the vote case, which I'll get into. But after terrasoft it didn't, it didn't open a floodgate of liability because in, in a nutshell, basically the judges and juries, they, they tend to rule in favor of mental health professionals Judges and juries tend to understand, look, we want there to be confidentiality in the consulting office. We also understand that mental health professionals have a hard time predicting whether or not one client is going to do something bad and another client isn't. So so most judges and juries tend to be under, very understanding of the position that we're in as as mental health professionals, so, and that that should and that should be comforting, <clears throat> as especially as we go into the Peterson and the Volk case. So even though Tarasov was scary, because they're like it's you know it uh, mental health professionals are like wait, I can get sued if my patient the 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 reality is that when we actually look at case law, so they actually did an analysis of seventy cases. That went to appellate courts between 1985 and 2006 in, in which a terrace off or duty to warn or duty to protect was, was part of the whole thing. And they found that the, the majority – so 46 cases out of 70, 46 cases out of 70, the courts ruled in favor of the defendant. In other words, they ruled in favor of the mental health professional saying that the mental health professional was not liable, not negligent. Seventeen cases, the uh, they were sent back to lower courts, which I'm not sure exactly what that means. And only in six cases out of the seventy did the courts rule in favor of the plaintiff. The you know the in other words, only six cases did they rule against the mental health professional, finding that the mental health professional was negligent in their duty to protect, duty to warn. And only four of those six cases actually involve Tarasov. So, so very few out of, so out of 70 cases that actually end up in court. So if you're a mental health professional out there, this should be very comforting because how many times does a patient harm another person? You know, I I don't know the stats on that, but, and I don't know if anybody does, but it happens. It's got to statistically, it's got to happen a lot, right? out of the millions of people in therapy across the United States, how many of those people in a given year harm someone in a criminal manner, in a, you know, seriously, either murder or, or serious harm or something like that? You know, we're, we're talking like a, I, I don't know, I'm just imagining it's got to be a pretty high number, probably in the thousands, tens of thousands or something, especially when you include people who, aren't in therapy currently but used to be within a few months or at least under psychiatric med management or something. So we've we got to think, you know, tens of thousands estimated. Well, between the years of 1985 and 2006, from what I understand, if I'm understanding this, this study right, There's only been 70 cases, actually, that ended up in the appellate courts. Now, maybe there's, obviously, I guess, now that I think about it, there'd be more cases that would have ended up in trial court. But my impression is, based on these studies, is that very few cases actually end up in court, meaning that it's pretty rare for a mental health professional to be implicated or accused or um, dragged into this situation. And that's my anecdotal experience. I, I I have a colleague who... Had a had a family therapy client, and the father murder-suicided his family. So imagine that you're you're a family therapist. You're treating uh, the you know parents and kids, and then a couple days after the after one of the sessions, the dad gets a gun, kills his family, kills himself, burns the house down. That's that's a terrifying thing, right? And and she wasn't sued that there was an investigation, but she wasn't sued. There's just not a big push for people to sue mental health professionals. It's just not a common reaction because I think most people understand that we're doing our best and and we care and, and we're really uh, concerned about safety and we do our best, which isn't much, you know, because how do you stop someone from, from doing something like that? So so anyway, and even of the cases that end up in court, the vast majority, when it comes to, when it's in the gray zone, they, the, the juries and the judges tend to rule in favor of the mental health professional because most people understand our job. The judges and the juries, they, they, they seemingly understand our job, which is that we have very limited ability to predict the future of our patient's behavior. And we, we just have a hard time predicting behavior, you know, and so, and we're stuck between a rock and a hard place because we can't violate confidentiality. And, and so it, it seems that the courts generally understand that. Okay. So that's Tarasov. And that was the rule of land. And for many people, it still is, but in Washington state, at the very least, um, it, it isn't because of other court precedents that happened in Washington. So remember Tarasov is just California. Now, if you're in one of those states that has a law that the state passed that basically uh, codifies Tarasov into law, then 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 you have that as well, but you, but you shouldn't we shouldn't be referring to it as Tarasov. I think one of the problems is is we refer to this as Tarasov, but really Every state has their own TerraSoft-esque situation. And I think all this talk of TerraSoft makes it so that we turn to TerraSoft as guidance, but really every state mental health, every, in every state, every mental health professional has to figure out what their state situation is, which I, I have to say is just ridiculous that again, we have like, Different standards in different states. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, how, why would a Washington, a Washingtonian mental health professional have a different liability than an Oregonian one? It just, it, it's silly, you know, especially when you consider that our field actually isn't that big and there's a, there's a limited amount of resources to educate the mental health professionals about this. So, you know, in essence, we have to have 50 different versions of training and the ethics books don't have that. They just have one educational training thing. And then usually there's something, some clause in there that says, but your state might be different. So make sure you check with your state. And so I just, I don't know. I just find that to just be a, a huge, um, I don't know, just problem with our profession and really our, professional organizations should be getting together and figuring this shit out uh, to benefit all of us anyway. So, okay. So the takeaway from Tarasoft for many people, again, just to, just to reiterate this is that there needed to be an utterance, meaning that the, the the client had to utter a explicit threat toward a specific person. So, according uh, the, the, what a lot of people took away from Tarasov, because they looked at this case law, because this isn't state law, this is case law, because you know we're looking at how this, the California Supreme Court ruled and what they said. And what a lot of people took away was, oh, I have a duty to warn. If one of my patients threatens to kill a, a specific person, I have a duty to warn that person. Not only should I call the police, but I should also try to contact that person or tell the police to contact that person so that that potential victim has the ability to get out of town or do whatever they need to do to protect themselves. And that's my duty to warn. And so for decades, we've been talking about this duty to warn. And I bet you anything, if, if you're a mental health professional, you have a clause in your confidentiality, um, uh, you know, paragraph on your disclosure statement and your, Right to, rights to privacy statement, you have a, a, a clause that says duty to warn. And whenever you say duty to warn, everyone understands that. And whenever you say Tarasov, people say duty to warn. Well, I've been told by experts this is actually not – this is actually a false situation, <laughs> that we don't understand Tarasov. Yes, uh, the state Supreme Court in California with Tarasov were saying, yes, do, yes, you have a duty to warn. But you have a greater, more a more broad duty to protect the public. Out of that duty to protect the public, you might have a duty to warn. So again, going back to Justice to- Tobriner, to- Tobriner is saying, "We conclude that the public policy favoring protection of the confidential character of patient psychotherapist communications." must yield to the extent to which disclosure is essential to avert danger to others. The protective privilege ends where the public peril begins. So, in this language, it doesn't say anything about you, only if there's an identifiable victim. It doesn't say that. What it says is you, yes, confidentiality, absolutely, but if you learn information that that pres- that y- is it's reasonable to predict that there would be danger to anybody then you have a duty to do something about that uh, you have a duty uh, to potentially violate confidentiality to to do that and and I'll get more into what all this means in terms of practice at the end here so from what i understand we none of us really understood Tarasov. <laughs> is the thing and we we thought we did basically because I th- this is my interpretation. I think we had wishful thinking that okay, if I follow this very narrow situation, then I'm okay. But actually, no the the courts are saying, look, there's a there's a much broader responsibility of a duty to protect, uh, even if there is an identifiable victim. Okay, so Peterson versus State of Washington, which was decided in 1983. But let's back up. So in in 1975, all the way back in 1975, just a couple years after Ban on the Run by Paul McCartney, I'm not sure. Larry Knox is a guy in Washington state who committed a crime and uh, some sort of robbery or something and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. So Larry Knox 1975 sentenced to 15 years in prison. But his prison sentence was suspended as long as he fulfilled some conditions of probation, including that he participate in some mental health counseling and he refrained from using drugs. Okay, so fast forward. He seems to be at least staying out of trouble over for a couple years. And in 1977, Larry Knox took some substances and became delusional, apparently. And he cut out his left testicle. Yikes. <laughs> cut out his left testicle. So, so I just have to say, after reading the case about Larry Knox, I, I can't figure out if Larry Knox was psychotic or, or a severe drug user who would become psychotic upon using drugs because he used angel dust. And, you know, I think that was sort of popular at the time. Think of like bath salts, right? Like you hear about how people use it and you're, and you hear about these horrible cases where people just go crazy. Well, that's angel dust. So, so his brother finds him lying in a a blood soaked bed uh, because he uh, maybe passed out or something, cutting out his own testicle. And he, he, he takes him to the hospital the hospital staff reported that Larry Knox was delusional, so they called the MHP, who evaluated him. So remember, this is all Washington State. Larry Knox was involuntarily detained in, at Western State Hospital for a maximum of 72 hours, which was apparently the law back then, too. You can only be involuntarily. Uh, a, a mental health professional, a county-designated mental health professional, can can say you are a danger to sell for others, and therefore you need to be um, detained at a mental health hospital for up to 72 hours, and um, during that time, you'll be evaluated. And uh, if the evaluation says that you are going to be a danger to yourself and, other pe- and others, then the doctors will go to the judge and, and petition for a longer involuntary commitment. So Larry Knox goes to a psychiatrist, goes to the hospital, and is treated by Dr. Miller. Larry Knox told Dr. Miller he had taken angel dust just prior to the incident in which he cut out his testicle. Dr. Miller diagnosed Knox as having a schizophrenic reaction primarily due to his use of angel dust. So Dr. Miller's opinion was, well, he's not normally psychotic. He's only psychotic when he uses angel dust. And so so that helps us understand maybe Larry Knox's condition. Dr. Miller also prescribed an antipsychotic medication, which I have to say, why would you do that if, <laughs> if, if it's only because of Angelus? Anyway, Dr. Miller filed a court petition requesting authority to detain Knox for an additional 14 days. So Dr. Miller's like, yeah, Larry Knox... You know, he's cooperating, but he's he's not ready to be released yet. So, Judge, can you please authorize another 14 days of involuntary commitment? Okay, so Dr. Miller testified in court uh, to the judge that Larry Knox was gravely disabled as a result of his drug abuse and presented a likelihood of serious harm to himself, not not to other people. So, at this point, Dr. Miller isn't worried that Larry Knox is going to hurt other people because Larry Knox isn't talking about hurting other people. What, what Larry Knox is communicating is a, is a desire to do things to himself, like cut out his testicle. Well, the court granted the petition and they said, okay, sure you can keep him for another two weeks. So Dr. Miller continued treating Larry Knox and evaluating him and kept administering the antipsychotic medication. So <clears throat> it at toward the end of the 14 days on May 8th, 1977, this is Sunday and it's Mother's Day. And Larry Knox apparently asked to be um, let out of the hospital so he could visit his mom. And the hospital is like, oh, sure. So Larry Knox was allowed to temporarily leave just for the day to visit his family as long as he returned that evening. That evening, Larry Knox was – so apparently Larry Knox took some drugs uh, that day and was driving his car uh, erratically and eventually made his way to the hospital. So he, he did go back to the hospital, which I find to be interesting. And he was spinning his car in circles. So I'm guessing he's doing donuts in the parking lot or something. And the hospital security see this. They get, they see him, they stop him and they bring him into the hospital. And the security guards are like, so we found one of your patients in the, in the hospital parking lot doing, you know, uh, doing donuts in the parking lot. Okay. So, so now Dr. Miller is faced with a situation. He has a patient who is seemingly getting better and doesn't seem to be psychotic anymore. But on this temporary leave, does this situation where he probably took some drugs and then he, he drove his car in this really dangerous way, Right. And and you have this. So so for Doctor Miller, you have two. You have you have some data points. You have this guy apparently takes drugs and can't control it. And he takes angel dust. And when he takes angel dust, sometimes he becomes psychotic and and very um, uh, unpredictable in terms of his behavior. We have an episode in which he took uh, angel dust and, and and cut out his own testicle, which. You know, leads one to believe like, well, if he takes angel dust again, he could cut out his other testicle or he could he could kill himself or try to cut out his own heart or something. So so that's one thing. And then you have this this sort of this wild card data point of, huh, this one time he took drugs, he ended up driving his car in a parking lot doing donuts. Okay. So so Dr. Miller um is faced with a situation where he, he is involuntarily keeping Larry Knox in the hospital, and he could go back to the judge and say, I want another 14 days. But does he have enough evidence to do so? And I'm guessing Dr. Miller determined he did not. He, he said, I, I don't have enough evidence here to say that Larry Knox is a danger to himself and others. Do I think he's going to leave here and everything's going to be fine? No, but I don't have, he, he's, he's complying with treatment. He's taking the medic, he's taking the antipsychotic medication. He's agreed not to use drugs. Uh, you know, I don't know what what more we can do here because Dr. Miller at Western state sees much Sees all. They. This hospital is the hospital, the mental health hospital in Washington State, and so they see, they see all of the severe cases. And so this Larry Knox case is probably not that big of a deal. It's probably like, well, he had a bad he had a bad drug trip, and did something to himself, and you know, I I don't know what more we can do here. So Dr. Miller discharged Larry Knox from the hospital the following morning, since that was the end of, of the 14 days. And, okay. Now, some of you out there might be listening, you might be like, wait a second, you just let that guy out? That guy's a maniac. Well, we don't know that we know, we know he's a maniac because we're talking about him and, and if everything was fine, then there wouldn't be a case. And so you're, you're predicting, or maybe, you know, the Peterson case and you're like, Oh, I know where this is going. Um, but honestly, when I read, a, if, if someone just presented a case to me like that, I'd be like, yeah, I, I, you know, as a hospital, you only have so much resources. And if every, if you went to the judge for every single person, And was like, look, this, you know, I'm, I'm scared this person's going to do something. Eventually the judge isn't going to listen to you because you think that about everybody, (laughs) you know? So I I just have to kind of point that out. All right. So when Larry Knox got home, he flushed the antipsychotic medication down the toilet and was like, I'm not going to take that shit. And he immediately started using substances again. Now, What I will say is why didn't the hospital at least say or set up drug treatment or something? I mean, it just seems like wouldn't it be nice if the legal system back then – maybe drug court didn't exist back then. I don't know. But the legal system, mental health system should have at the very least mandated drug treatment, right? That that would have targeted the main problem here. But anyway. So five days later – after being released on May fourteenth, nineteen seventy-seven, in Tacoma, Washington, Larry Knox was on drugs, and he was you know maybe angel dust, not sure. Very intoxicated, and he's he was driving his car, and he ran a red light, traveling at fifty to sixty miles an hour. So he he's he's impaired, and he just blows through a a, a stoplight. Now, I I couldn't find information on why he did this. If it was just that he was high and couldn't tell what was happening, or if sometimes people try to kill themselves this way, it's a very stupid, immoral way to try to commit suit to try to kill yourself. They will drive in a crazy manner and hope that they get in a car wreck so that they die. And in the process, kill other people, right? Anyway, so I don't know if that was the situation but either way we know that he was heavily intoxicated and he blew through a he blew through a, a red light and he ran into a car and in the car was Cynthia Peterson. Now Cynthia Peterson did not die but she was severely injured. And Knox after the Larry Knox after the accident it was apparent to witnesses who were at the scene of the accident that Larry Knox Seem to be heavily um, influenced by drugs. Incidentally, Larry Knox was still on probation for the second degree burglary conviction I was talking about earlier, which required him to get mental health treatment and refrain from using substances. So that's, I think, another factor in this case. So I don't know what happened to Larry Knox. He probably actually went to prison be- because he violated his parole. I don't know. But but we do know what happened to the victim of the car accident, which is Cynthia Peterson. So Cynthia Peterson, she's like, "So wait a second, uh, who is this guy, Larry Knox? Why did he hit me?" Well, I, I'm in the hospital now. I don't, I don't know to the extent. I, Cynthia Peterson, I think was severely injured. I, I'm, I don't know to what extent, but it, it wasn't just a minor accident. I mean, imagine being t boned by a car. At fifty to sixty miles per hour in the seventies, when cars did not have crumple zones and did not have airbags and all that kind of stuff, and and people didn't even wear their (laughs) seatbelts. I mean, when I think about that, I'm just like, my God, nobody wore their seatbelt in the seventies. Nobody. I remember as a kid never wearing a seatbelt, and and I I actually one of my friends his his mom whenever we got in the car she made us all wear seatbelts and i remember just being so upset by it at the, i remember when i was 3 or 4 years old she's like okay put your seatbelt on and i was like what come on and and, uh, and i anyway so cynthia peterson who knows but anyway the point is is that she she's like wait a second so this the guy who hit me had just gotten out of hospital and and they knew he used drugs, He that he becomes very strange on drugs, and that he drives dangerously. Just five days earlier, six days earlier, he was doing donuts in a, a mental hospital parking lot. And he was a convicted criminal who was supposed to be in prison but was released on probation that he, uh, as long as he you know, didn't use drugs. And as long as he followed mental health treatment. So how come the state, how come the law and how come the hospital let this guy drive a car? So that's what she's thinking, right? Which is, you know, a rational thought. So Cynthia Peterson sues the state alleging that Dr. Miller and the hospital, they were negligent by failing to protect her from Larry Knox's potentially dangerous behavior. Eventually, it made its way to the Washington Supreme Court, meaning that the trial and appellate court uh, either didn't exactly – anyway, I don't know the exact language, but goes through trial court, appellate court, Supreme Court. Cynthia Peterson's lawyers argued that Dr. Miller should have sought either additional confinement or should have reported Larry Knox's parole violation. So what Cynthia Peterson's lawyers are saying is like, Doctor Miller should have gone to the court and asked for more me- involuntary confinement because, on the day before release discharge, he was using drugs and doing donuts in the parking lot. Okay, that that I- I'll say, yeah, um, that that. But again, I understand Doctor Miller's decision because there's there there's so many people kind of like that, and anyway. Um, So the lawyers are saying, look, you should have have detained him longer because he clearly wasn't ready to be discharged. The lawyers are also saying, or you should have called the parole officer and said that Larry Knox was violating his parole. Um, And that because you did not ask for additional involuntary time and because you did not call the parole officer that failure to to uh, you know do your duty to protect the public ended up in Larry Knox uh, exhibiting or being allowed to have dangerous behavior, which resulted in the injury of my client Cynthia Peterson. Now, what Doctor Miller is saying is, look, I have a, I have to be, I have a, I have to, I have a law there's a law of confidentiality there's a i have to uphold confidentiality i can't call a parole officer that violates confidentiality right Uh, and um I, i didn't and and there was no identifiable victim so so what what dr miller and is saying is like look i followed tarasoff that's the so by this point it's you know late 70s this is 10 years after Tarasov or eight years after Tarasov. I'm sure Dr. Miller knew of Tarasov. And he's like, look, I followed the Tarasov standard. And, and the understanding was at the time, like, look, even though this is California uh, court precedent, it's, it's been adopted uh, at least informally by everyone outside of California as well. And, and Larry Knox never made a specific threat to hurt anybody. And, there was no identifiable victim how how am i what am i supposed to do when it, someone presents general dangerous behavior you know like like driving dangerously how how many people how many patients of ours might drive dangerously i mean that that seems like an absurd thing so i'm supposed to i'm supposed to break confidentiality or i'm i'm um i'm responsible for my patient's behavior if if they drive dangerously. So that's that's the thing I I want to uh, delineate here because the knee-jerk reaction when you hear about cases like this is, so wait, I'm responsible for my client's behavior? And actually, that is not the language of the law. No mental health professional is responsible for their patient's behavior. What a mental health professional is responsible for is their own behavior. So me, as a as a therapist, I'm not responsible for my client's behavior. I'm only responsible for my behavior. So, when I have a duty to protect, I have to I have to do something. Now, it's hard to know exactly what to do because we don't have a we don't have a standard of that yet, and maybe we will in the future. But we have to do something. And what the lawyers were saying here is that Dr. Miller at at the state hospital he didn't do anything. He had someone who exhibited a, a, a you know, it was, it was reasonable to expect that Larry Knox was going to leave that hospital and do something dangerous, either to himself or other people. And Dr. Miller did nothing. He didn't do anything. He didn't, you know, if he had at least just called a parole officer, that would have been doing something. If he would have at least asked for more time, that would have been doing something. If he would have, uh, I don't know, done just something more, you know, um, but did nothing. So that's an important part of this. If you're a mental health professional out there and you're thinking and you're scared of what all this means, the, the takeaway, one of the big takeaways about all this stuff that I've had is do something. Do something. Do something. It doesn't necessarily even mean violating confidentiality. It could mean just further assessment, uh, in intent, more intense treatment, and I'll get more into the recommendations in a second, but the the key here is that Dr. Miller didn't do anything. It's not that the patient harmed someone. So let's say that Dr. Miller called the parole officer and said, I, I have a situation here, so uh, I just want to tell you what I've observed. I've observed that he... Uh, we we let him out on a day trip for Mother's Day, and the pierce he used substances, and he drove his car dangerously. I just want you to know that. Well, let's say the parole officer like, okay, I'll think about that, and then and then everything happens the same. Larry no- Larry Knox into uses drugs, get in, gets into his car, and runs into Cynthia Peterson. Well, it's possible that that one small little behavior that Dr. Miller did would release him from liability because he did something. He felt the duty to protect the public and he took an action that it, it was re, it was a reasonable action that, um, and, and now it's not on him anymore. It's on the parole officer that the parole officer didn't do anything or something like that. So, so it's not that you're in trouble if your patient does something dangerous. It's you're in trouble if you did nothing, <laughs> you know, if you, if you did nothing, then you, then, and your patient did something dangerous and you had at least some data indicating that your patient might do something dangerous, then, then yeah, you can, you might be fine negligent. Um, having said that, as I looked at that, um, you know, st- <clears throat> study um, my guess is, is you don't have to do a lot to avoid being uh, <clears throat> found negligent anyway. So, so again, just to review in this Peterson case with Dr. Miller and, Larry Knox and Cynthia Peterson there was no utterance there was no there was no utterance of an explicit threat and as as we understand with Tarasov and there was no identifiable victim there was a confidential relationship which, which they call a special relationship the the law calls our relationship a special relationship which is a relationship in which we have a duty to uh, we, we, we are privy to particular information that uh, is, you know, like if someone is acting dangerously, they, and you find out about it and you're a neighbor or something, well, that's not a special relationship. You are in a special relationship when you have a patient client or, you know, therapist client relationship. And so, therefore, you have a duty of reasonable care. To any foreseeable victim of the patient's mental problems, so there is a lot of elements to that. Okay, that we have to break down. So, you, you, I, as a therapist, I have a duty of reasonable care, meaning that I, I have to take reasonable action, meaning that. Uh, I don't have a duty to lock the client up. <laughs> I don't have a duty to follow the client around and make sure that they don't do anything. So that's not reasonable, right? So I, I have a duty to take reasonable actions, actions that are available to me and actions that are, are not unreasonable. Anyway, I have a duty to take reasonable actions for any foreseeable victim, so that's a key word in, in, the, in the legal precedent and the law is that there has to be foreseeable danger. You, just because someone has a mental illness or just because someone is upset a lot of the time or just because someone has a history of violence doesn't necessarily mean that there's a foreseeable victim or there's a foreseeable harm that's going to happen in the future. So there has to be some, some reasonable foreseeableness to the situation, right? So let's look at this Larry Knox case. Was there was it foreseeable that Larry Knox was going to be harmful to others in the future? Well, I, I don't know the answer to that question because in some ways I'm like, well, you know, 2020, hindsight is 2020, so yeah – But at the time, it's debatable. But at the very least, there was at least some indication that Larry Knox might do something uh, harming other people, namely, you know, stabbing himself or driving his car in a crazy manner. And therefore, Dr. Miller should have done something that reflected that That somewhat minor to moderate indication of risk. So by, you know, by either at least asking for more time in in the hospital from the judge or calling the parole officer. So there has to be a foreseeable victim. So if your client is just depressed, or if your client has minor suicidal ideation, or if your client gets angry sometimes and has guns in the house, that's not in all likelihood, because again, the law is very squishy and judges and juries decide differently on different cases. but in all likelihood, no one would consider those situations to be uh, uh, that a foreseeable harm t- in the future that it's not it's not predictable. It's not like, okay, well, there's a there's a high likelihood that something's going to happen here. What is foreseeable is if a client is making threats, if a client is having an escalation in violence upon other people, if a client is um, becoming more and more symptomatic and paranoid and convinced that a particular neighbor is out to get them or something, there's there's a certain foreseeableness. Now, what I'll say to this whole decision-making process is, you should never do this alone. You should always be consulting with other professionals and 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 really with experts on this. You you should all of you should have an expert that you know that you can call and maybe even pay to consult with on this because it'll be the best hundred dollars you ever spend, you know, to consult with someone who knows what they're talking about and get their expert opinion and pick their brain on this and then do what they say to do and document all that. That's that's the key here. You know, it's not that you, as a mental health professional, have to memorize all this stuff and like figure it out on your own. Um. Now, even if you do the wrong thing, but you consulted, sometimes that's enough for a uh, um, judge to release you from negligence because you knew enough to consult. And the consultant and you discuss things over and decided that there wasn't a foreseeable um, danger that that's taken into account. Even if you your consultation with other people ends up being wrong, it's still indication that you did something, and that that's an important thing to think about. The other part of this is that in in Peterson is that there was a clear mental illness, right? there's a clear mental problem this guy was exhibiting behavior in a sh- so you know we have the cut the testicle out situation and he's immediately hospitalized and then a couple weeks later he's driving don't he's taking drugs and driving donuts in the in the parking lot so this is a pretty you know compressed period of time and so it's not that he's just upset at the world there's actually something disturbed about this man, at least when he uses substances. And so that's another part of this as well, is in that we're expected as mental health professionals to be able to detect mental problems of a certain uh, category that say, look, this the, the, the mental state this person is in and the mental problems this person is suffering from is such that it's a lot harder to predict their behavior And so we have a duty to take reasonable care to protect the public uh, from the chaos of this person, you know. So, um, okay. So this is Washington Supreme Court, and it's the Peterson case. And uh, this was 1983. And when this happened, very little people paid attention to it. Very, very few people. Paid attention to it first. I don't know why. For some reason, for Tarasov, um, everyone paid attention to it, but with Peterson 1983, just just you know, uh, 15 years later ish, no one paid attention to it. And so, when I was going through graduate school in the 90s and and beyond, I never heard of Peterson. The first time I heard of Peterson was when I had. My friend Joe Shab on the podcast. I don't know, three or four years ago. He's a marriage and family therapist, and he's also a um, a lawyer, a family lawyer, and so he understands the law. And so, whenever I have a problem with understanding all this, I always call him. But when I was talking with him on the podcast a few years ago, he brought, he was like, "Yeah, so Tarasov, duty to warn, blah, blah blah." Also, there's this Washington case called Peterson, and he explained it. And what what he said was, and this was a few years ago, he's like, what's a little weird about the Peterson case is it is the law of Washington State, essentially, and no one's really following it, or very few people are, are really following it, and very few people even know about it. And what he said was, what'll be interesting is if there's a case of a question of negligence uh, on behalf of a of a mental health professional with regards to one of their patients harming the public. Somehow the Peterson case is likely to be called upon because that is a Washington court precedent and Tarasov will probably be discarded because that's a California court precedent. So what Joe Schaub was saying is like, what's a little weird is that we're all following this California court precedent and none of us are, None of us even know about the more recent Washington court precedent. And, and when he talked about that, I was like, my God, that's scary. Well, a, a case actually came before the Supreme Court asking that very question. And this was after uh, Joe Schaub predicted that this would happen. So that's Voke which I'm going to get into. Now, let's talk about the Voke case. So that's the most recent case that caused everyone to be like, "Oh, wait, there's a Peterson thing. I didn't even know about that." and caused a whole bunch of scariness to a whole bunch of mental health professionals. Okay, so in this case, we have to go back to the 1990s. And I've talked I talked about this case in the other episode, I, God, what was it? I think it was just called "Duty to warn'm um, Not sure, but but anyway, uh, this is an update to all that. So disregard that previous episode. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, so there's this guy named Jan Der Der Dermerlier, de Merlier. and as I did in the other episode, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna refer to him as Jan. I, it might be pronounced Jan. I'm not sure. But it's spelled Jan, and I'm going to pronounce it Jan. (laughs) So, uh, I don't know if it's right or not. But anyway, so so there's this guy named Jan, and he lives in Spokane. Jan from Spokane (laughs) in the 1990s, and he has he suffers from bipolar, and he becomes highly suicidal, and he becomes hospitalized. And during the hospitalization, he's diagnosed as having bipolar. And he uh, starts to enter treatment for bipolar in 2001. He entered treatment with Dr. Howard Ashby, who's a psychiatrist out in Spokane. And uh, Dr. Ashby prescribes medication for bipolar, and Jan starts to take it. Now, Dr. Ashby, at this point, became aware of Jan's previous hospitalization and his previous suicidal ideation. So so Dr. Ashby's like, okay, this guy has a pretty serious case of bipolar. He's been hospitalized before for suicidal ideation, which means that he has at least in the past had a had a pretty severe risk of killing himself. So, so those are important data points, right? Okay, so a number of years pass, Jan sees Dr. Ashby f- mostly for medication checks, not for psychotherapy. So, when you see a psychiatrist for medication checks, it's like, you know, once every few months, maybe more often if you're, if you're having some reaction to a med or you're more symptomatic or something. So pretty infrequent visit, visits between Dr. Ashby and Jan. Okay. So in 2003, a couple years after entering treatment with Dr. Ashby, Jan gets divorced from his wife his his wife divorces him which is a major stressor for him which is which is natural and he becomes very symptomatic and Jan reports during this time 2003 divorce he reports to Dr. Ashby that he's having high levels of suicidal thoughts and also homicidal thoughts so th- this is another key part here so Jan's he's like he's like my wife divorced me I don't know what to do I'm, I'm very upset, and I ha- I'm having intense thoughts of wanting to kill myself, and I'm also having thoughts of wanting to kill my, my ex-wife. I'm having thoughts that I want to kill her or someone else. Um, but according to what I could find, he, Jan wasn't hospitalized during this time. And Dr. Ashby provided treatment and eventually... Jan's symptoms decreased and Jan didn't try to kill himself. You know, there was no attempts as far as I could tell, and there were no attempts at homicide or harm to other people. So at this point, um, you know, Dr. Ashby is like, okay, so when Jan becomes symptomatic, he has thoughts of suicide and thoughts of homicide, but he doesn't actually follow through with it. Okay. So, uh, also, during this time, when he became highly symptomatic, Jan would stop taking his meds sometimes, which is common to people with bipolar. So that's another kind of data point there. That you know, the medications for bipolar have a lot of side effects. Plus, they take away your your mania, which can be a very good time for people. So anyway, skipping forward a couple more years, uh, Jan began. Began dating, he began dating a woman named Rebecca Shearing, <clears throat> and they eventually become engaged. So it looks like Jan is rebuilding his life. He's less symptomatic now. He got over the divorce. And so skipping forward here five years, so we have five years of, of Jan seemingly being fine and not having any significant suicidal ideation and probably not having any homicidal ideation. So, so skipping forward to 2010, so this is about seven years, eight years, eight, eight or nine years after being a treatment with Dr. Ashby. So just think about that. You're Dr. Ashby. You have a patient you've been seeing for nine years, and your patient has been doing you know pretty well for, and been pretty functioning for nine years. Okay. So 2010, Rebecca Shearing breaks up with Jan. She's like, nah, I know we're engaged to get married, but I don't want to do this anymore. She breaks up with with Jen. And Jen becomes very upset by this naturally. And his bipolar symptoms increase. And he makes an appointment with Dr. Ashby. He says, I got to get in. I got to talk to you because um, my my fiance broke up with me and I'm, I'm starting to have a lot of symptoms. So Dr. Ashby has this one appointment with Jen again 2010 and we have Dr. Ashby's notes actually from that session and the notes state he states when depressed he can get intrusive suicidal ideation not that he would act on it but it bothers him at this point it's not a real clinical problem but we will keep an eye on it unquote so in this in this in this session note all we have here is dr. Ashby it, Dr. Ashby is assessing for suicide and and Jan is saying that he has intensive he has intrusive suicidal ideation which is common for people who have bipolar when they're going through stress it's it's totally a, a very normal thing for people and nothing to be alarmed by right and that Jan also states that he's not going to act on it. Uh, but it bothers him that these thoughts sort of enter his mind. So as I talked about in the other episode, when if I heard this, I would, I would label that as a pretty low risk of suicide. People who suffer from depression and other related conditions will, for sometimes their entire life, throughout their entire life, they will have intrusive thoughts of suicide. You know, it'll just pop into their head, just like you know what. It'd be a lot easier if you just if you just weren't alive anymore. And there are two. There's two general categories of reactions to that that you'll see from the individual with that intrusive thought. One is is okay, let's start making a plan. I, I agree, let's do it. And the other one is is like no 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 no. <laughs> I'm not going to kill myself. Okay. So what we see here in Dr. Ashby's notes is that Jan was the second category. And this sort of person, I don't worry about. I don't worry about a person who comes to me and says, "Yeah, I'm, I'm having some like sort of flash thoughts of suicide, but you know, I, I don't want to do that. I, I would never act on it, and I don't want to kill myself. That's just not that's just not for me." Um, but I don't like those thoughts entering my head. If I heard that from someone, I'd be like, "Oh, pretty pretty low risk." So I just wanna I just wanna point that out. Um. He also says in his notes uh, that he's going to keep an eye on it. So maybe that's another key part of his liability here, because it could be argued Dr. Ashby did not keep an eye on it. Okay, so eventually this ends up in court, right? So Dr. Ashby's lawyer said, Dr. Ashby knew this patient very well. He did assessments each and every visit, and the last visit showed that the patient had good insight into his thought processes he appeared rational, and he was denying any kind of intent to harm anyone. And so, so what the lawyer is saying here is, look, so eventually, just to skip forward a little bit, Jan actually ends up killing his, his ex-fiancee and himself and one of her sons, actually. So what the lawyer is saying is, here is, look, there was no indication in this session with Dr. Ashby that Jan was going to kill anybody. He he had some fairly minor suicidal ideation, uh, which you know, Doctor Ashby addressed. But there was no indication that Jan was going to kill someone. You know, Jan didn't. There was no utterance, as we've been talking about. Right? There was there was no indication at all. There was no thought. There was no disclosure from Jan. I mean, maybe Jan was having thoughts, but Jan never indicated as such. And we're not we're not supposed to be mind readers, right? And so the lawyer, Dr. Ashby's lawyers are like, "Look, how was Dr. Ashby supposed to know that Jan was going to later kill his ex you know kill these two people and then kill himself? How was Dr. Ashby supposed to know that? That's crazy. Uh, Dr. Ashby has several patients who suffer from bipolar he He has several patients who talk about intrusive thoughts of suicide how How is he supposed to know? okay so Again, um, Dr. Ashby, just to sort of pause in this moment before Jan committed the murders, Dr. Ashby assessed for suicidal ideation and decided that Jan was not a high enough risk to change the treatment plan. He just decided to continue the current medication regimen. And um, uh, the later, the judges would say that Dr. Ashby should have done more. So, but honestly... From from my reading of the case, I don't agree. I, I think that uh, Jan uh, was presenting in such a way that it looked like things would be fine. Um, so so the reason why this Voke case scares me and other people is because Dr. Ashby was found negligent or was potentially found to be negligent. Anyway, okay. So three months pass since this last session. And there's no contact between Jan and Dr. Ashby and there's no contact between Jan and any other mental health professional. So Jan becomes more symptomatic and he stops taking his medication. And presumably Jan became more symptomatic with bipolar, more angry, more suicidal, and started to develop some homicidal ideation as well. So, his his family or her family or some some family members they started contacting dr. Ashby in this three-month period and they're they're saying look we're concerned about Jan's behavior he he seems to be losing control and they tell him they tell Dr. Ashby Jan has guns in his house and I, I think you should I think you should do something okay so now at this point, this is, this is a detail that I didn't actually know before. When I in the previous episode, I didn't know this detail. This is a point where Dr. Ashby prob, you know, should have probably done something, but he didn't. So Dr. Ashby um, in, that, in that last session is like, oh, well, you know, we have a, a person who is you know, having an uptick in symptoms and has some minor suicidal ideation, but you know, everything seems to be okay. After that session, Dr. Ashby starts getting communications saying that Jan is out of control, he has guns, people are afraid. If I personally, if I had a family member call me saying that they thought that they were really worried about someone's behavior, that would very much worry me, because that is a rare phone call. It's not often I, I've never, I don't think, had a phone call because I don't typically see clients like this. But but if I did, I'd be like, Wow, for for a family member to call me and tell me that they're worried about someone that that indicates something. Okay. So Dr. Ashby apparently didn't do anything and uh, maybe some more weeks pass and Jan shot and killed Rebecca, his ex-girlfriend and shot both of her sons too, which is just, you know, what killed one and wounded the other and then Jan killed himself. So, just terrible tragedy, just awful, um, and an evil, terrible act that Jan, you know, did. So after the dust settled, Rebecca's family sued Dr. Ashby. The lawyer said that Dr. Ashby was negligent, which led to Jan committing the murder-suicide. The lawyer said that Dr. Ashby should have done more to protect the public. And I might agree with that. They said that Dr. Ashby knew that Jan had previously talked about killing others and himself, and therefore Dr. Ashby should have known there was a risk. So again, just to remind you, back in 2003, so this was seven years earlier, after Jan's previous breakup, his divorce with his wife, Jan did have homicidal ideation and suicidal ideation. And the lawyers were saying that since Jan was going through another breakup, Dr. Ashby should have known that Jan would have homicidal ideation again, even though Jan did not indicate that he was having homicidal ideation. Um, that I'll, I'll argue with a little bit because how you know, just because someone had homicidal ideation seven years ago in a similar situation doesn't mean they're going to have it again. So so that I'll I'll argue against. But what I will what I will side with the um, with the lawyers uh, trying to find that Doctor Ashby was negligent is that once the family started calling, then Doctor Ashby should have said, "Huh, I wonder if this is a similar situation to seven years ago." There is some indication of that, anyway. So, Doctor Ashby's lawyers said that Doctor Ashby did not have didn't have to make a report to Rebecca or to the MHPs or to the police because the case did not meet did not meet the Tarasov standard, right? So again, this is after Peterson in Washington state and the lawyers are saying Tarasov, they're not saying Peterson, they're saying Tarasov. And what they're saying is, look, there was no utterance. Jan never said to Dr. Ashby that he was going to kill anybody and there was no identifiable victim, even if he did say that. So there was no utterance, no identifiable victim. Therefore, the Tarasov standard was upheld. You know, uh, they were, were good. There was no duty to warn. There was no duty to warn. So the judge sided in favor of Dr. Ashby. The judge is like, oh, okay, well, um, yeah, Tarasov is the standard. And therefore, there was no duty to warrant because Jan never told Dr. Ashby that Jan was going to kill anyone, let alone a specific person. So the trial judge is like, I'm going to dismiss this case. So the judge just says, no, dis- case dismissed because Dr. Ashby followed the standard of care and there's no there's no duty here. So we have to uh, educate ourselves on tort law and on negligence, which is a, a general law or, or procedure that the law will follow whenever there are questions of negligence. And there are three questions here. One is, is, do you have a duty and what is your duty? The second question is, if there is a duty, did you breach your duty? And then the third question is, was there foreseeable harm? And, and, and I guess there's more than three questions. Like, what should you have done about it? So so we have to ask, did – so in this trial court, they're saying, was there even a duty to do anything here? And what their conclusion was in the trial court was, no, there was no duty because there was no identifi- – there was no utterance and there was no identifiable victim. So no duty. okay. So we don't have to go on to the other questions of did you breach your duty, and you know what should you have done about it. Okay, so again, trial court, the first hearing, they fi- they f- they in favor, they rule in favor of the psychiatrist. Well, there's an appeal. They go to the appellate court and they favor in in on uh, in favor of the family. They. They rule in favor of the family. And the appellate court is like, yes, you did have a duty, Dr. Ashby, to protect the public. And you did have enough reason to believe that there was going to be harm. Okay, so then it goes to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court doesn't rule on negligence. The Supreme Court only rules on law, matters of law. And so what the the Supreme Court is doing when they when they hear a case like this is what's the interpretation of the law? And so the, the question before them is, is there a duty? Was there a duty for Dr. Ashby to protect the public? The trial court is saying no, there was no duty because there's no utterance, no identifiable victim. They're following Tarasov. The appellate court is like, we don't need to follow Tarasov in Washington because we have this Washington case called Peterson in which the court precedent is that there is a duty. Remember Peterson at the state hospital in which you had Larry Knox doing donuts in the parking lot. Doctor, The this, the psychiatrist there, according to case law in 1983, the, the doctor had a duty to protect the public from this patient's general dangerous behavior, even though there was no utterance and no identifiable victim. So, in other words, the court is saying: in in for Peterson, if you have reason to believe that your patient is going to harm anybody, then you have a duty to do something. Your duty is is enacted. You don't have a duty to necessarily protect the public, but you have a duty to take action to reduce the risk. And that's an important distinction that it took me a while to understand, you know. I don't have a duty to stop my clients from harming other people, but I do have a duty to do something to try to reduce the risk. And if I do something and the client still goes out and still goes out and harms someone, then I have done my duty. That's that's a that's that's what makes me feel a lot better <laughs> about this whole thing. It's like Peterson does not say you're in trouble if your client does something. Peterson says, you're in trouble if you do nothing when your client exhibits a foreseeable risk of harm to other people. Okay. So the appellate court is like, look, we have Peterson. And what Peterson says is, yes, there is a duty. And we find that, that Dr. Ashby, with regards to the murder-suicide of Jan, we find that He was, he did have a duty and was negligent. The trial court is like, no, Tarasov didn't have, okay. So Supreme Court is like, okay, who was right? The trial court or the appellate court? And, but the, the, again, the Supreme Court is not ruling on negligence. They're only ruling on duty. In order to establish negligence, you have to have, was there a duty? Did you breach that duty? And did you, did you not, was there harm to someone else, essentially, you know? because you and you have to have all three. so so you can have a duty, you can breach your duty, but as long as there's no harm. so so say Jan never harmed anybody. Well, the appellate court would have and there, there'd be no reason to take it to court, but if it did, the tr- the appellate court would have been like, yes, Dr. Ashby had a duty to, to protect the public. Yes. Um, number one. number two, did, did Dr. Ashby breach that duty? Yes, because Dr. Ashby didn't do anything about it. Number three, was there harm to anybody? And if Jan hadn't done the murder-suicide, then the trial court would be, the appellate court would have been like, well, there's no harm. Therefore, Dr. Ashby is not negligent. Dr. Ashby took a risk, but since there was no harm to anybody, there's no negligence. That's So that's my understanding of tort law, is that you had, was there a duty? Did you breach that duty? And was there harm? So if you know your duty and there's harm, um but, but you did stuff to try to uh, uphold your duty, to meet your duty, did you fulfill your duty, then you're not negligent. So all those things have to be in place. And so the Supreme Court is faced with just the first question of, was there a duty? Essentially, in a nutshell, the Supreme Court is, is, in Washington was ruling for the first time whether or not the standard of the land in Washington is Peterson or Tarasov. This is just, this is exactly what my friend and, and legal expert Joe Schaub said might happen. Is he was like, we don't know what our responsibility here is in Washington. Is it TerraSoft or is it Peterson? And, and that was, that was the exact question before the Washington Supreme Court. And so what, what they did is they said that Peterson is our guide the supreme court said terasoff is a california uh, state uh, precedent court precedent which is which is great and we you know we can follow that but we have a much closer to home clo- closer to home court precedent of peterson plus terasoff although is interpreted as a uh, as as there needing to be utterance and a identifiable victim actually even if we look at terasoff the the way that the justices discussed it it wasn't that specific it, it was a general duty to protect similar to peterson so whenever we talk about a duty to warn we're actually only talking about a sliver of our overall duty to protect so we all we all have to beat that into our heads is we have a duty to warn yes if there is a utterance and an identifiable victim we have we have to do some we have to protect we have to we have a duty to warn but we also have a, a broader, more general duty to protect. And that's the language we need to start using for ourselves is, yes, we have a duty to warn, but we also have a bigger duty to protect the public from foreseeable harm. Again, it has to be foreseeable that our clients might uh, exhibit. So, so the Supreme Court said that the appellate court was right, Dr. Ashby did does have a duty. And so the Supreme Court sent it back to trial court and said, start over with the assumption that Dr. Ashby does have a duty. And now you have to, so you have that question answered by us. But now the trial court has to answer the two other questions. Did Dr. Ashby breach that duty? And was there harm? Well, you can say yes, there was harm, absolutely, because there's a murder-suicide. But that second question was still unknown the second question of did dr ashby breach the duty the supreme court was saying there's enough there's enough data here to say that maybe he did breach the duty but that's not up for us to decide what what has to be decided is at the trial court so wh- but what ended up happening was dr ashby and the family ended up settling before they went to trial court and so We don't know how it would have turned out. So this makes it ambiguous for us. We do have one answer from our state court system, which is that Peterson is the standard. Peterson is how uh, we will be, you know, in terms of interpreting negligence and our duty, Peterson is the standard we have to follow, not tear us off. But But what we don't know is was there, you know, what, how are the courts going to interpret breaches of that duty? What's the threshold? Should Dr. Ashby have done more or did he do enough? We just don't know. Should Dr. Ashby, have? you know, should he have called the police? Should he have called the family? Should he have increased treatment? Should he have uh, sought involuntary treatment? It's just unknown what exactly Dr. Ashby should have done but and that bothers me to some extent and it bothers a lot of other people too because they're just like well this is so ambiguous well it's been explained to me by experts that that is actually a good thing ambiguity in situations like this is actually a good thing because what it allows for is special circumstances of each of each situation to be taken into account and and it allows us as mental health professionals some flexibility uh, to uh, address a particular situation that uh, addresses that particular situation. So imagine if the court said, when this happens, then you have to do A, B, and C. Well, that would relieve some of our anxiety because we'd be like, okay, now I know what to do. But what it, but what it would create are problems because what if a, a particular situation doesn't really call for that? and let me give you an example we are mandated reporters of child abuse and as far as i understand and and, uh, and i've talked with cps workers about this that there's no time limit on that so if if i have an 85 year old woman who comes to me and says i was i was physically abused when i was a child by my father there there's no specific rule that says there's a statute of limitations to that. And so if I just follow the, the letter of the law, I have to report that. I have to say, um, I have to call CPS and say, look, I have this 85 year old woman who said, who told me that when she was 10, she was abused by her father who has now passed away, but I'm a mandated reporter. So I have to report that. So, so if I just follow the letter of the law, That's the situation. But the spirit of the law is to protect children from abuse, right? There's no chance that this, that this man who is now deceased is going to abuse anyone. So therefore I can use my own clinical judgment and say like, well, uh, you know, even though the law doesn't say there's an exception to the rule in this situation, I'm not going to report it because I know that CPS won't care about this. And so, there so what it does is the flexibility allows me to to move within the understanding of the law and and how it is enforced such that I can meet the spirit of the of the law and also not cuz cuz the problem is is if I made every single report to CPS I could really uh, threaten my relationships with my clients cuz my clients would would worry that i 'm going to tell everyone about everything, and so so that's i'm not explaining that very well, but my, my point is is that when there's ambiguity it it allows us to to really be thoughtful about every situation that we're in and and as long as you understand it to some extent and consult with people who who do who understand it very well then you're usually fine. one aspect about the Vogue case. V-O-L-K, that's V-O-L-K, Voke. That's the, you know, it's, it's, that's the, the name, it's Voke versus uh, Demerlier, Um So the the interesting thing about the Voke case is that, uh, or one aspect of it that we need to really shine a light on is that there had been something like three or four months between the last appointment and the the crime by by Jan, so that's an important aspect of this, you know. So Jan tells Doctor Ashby, "I'm you know I'm, I'm going through a tough time. I'm having an increase in symptoms. I'm having an increase in suicidal thoughts." And then, and Doctor Mir- and Doctor Ashby is like, okay, well, let's let's keep an eye on it. And then proceeds to not meet with Jan for for a number of months. So that's not keeping an eye on it, right? Another aspect of this is that if Doctor Ashby wanted to release himself from liability, one of the things that he could have done that may or may not have worked is he could have terminated with Jan. Right, and this is something that I talk with my supervisees all the time about, which is when so, you know, a lot of clients they just sort of drift away. You know, they'll they'll cancel an appointment, or they'll reschedule, or they'll say, "Oh, I'll I'll call you to schedule the next appointment." And and then before long, you're like, "Huh, I haven't seen that one client for a couple of months. I I wonder what's going on." Well, a lot of clients will will essentially terminate in that way. Whether they know they're terminating or not, it, it that's what's happening. And so while that client is in that sort of limbo zone where we don't really know is this going to start up again or is it not, they're still under your care. And therefore you're still responsible for monitoring their their situation. And if they do something that is a danger to themselves or other people harms themselves or other people, then you might be found negligent and liable for that because they're still technically your, your client. And therefore you technically still have a quote unquote special relationship with them. And so, and a lot of you clinicians know this already is that you, after a certain period of time, you should officially terminate with the client, meaning you notify the client saying that the therapeutic relationship has terminated because you haven't seen him in a while and that you're going to close the case. Now you might also say, I'd love to reinitiate counseling with you. Uh, all you have to do is call me and you know, we can set up an appointment, but I'm, I'm just telling you for now, I'm closing the case. And what this does is it's a, it, it's an official notification to the, the client that you're no longer, you no longer have that, that responsibility. Now, in the Dr. Ashby situation, I'm guessing that wouldn't have worked very well because as Jan became more symptomatic, it could be argued that Dr. Ashby just sending a letter to Jan saying that you're terminating, you know, probably wouldn't have let him off the hook, I'm guessing, especially after the family started calling him and saying, look, you know, he's dangerous. So, but at the, so what Dr. Ashby should have done, apparently is he should have at least tried to have had more sessions with Jan at the very least to assess his symptoms. You know, we, we have Jan, Jan comes to Dr. Ashby and he's like, my symptoms are getting worse and my suicidal thoughts are getting worse. And, you know, in the back of Dr. Ashby's mind should be like, huh, he had homicidal ideation the last time he went through a breakup. Maybe I should increase the frequency of my visits with this guy. Or maybe I should require him to see a weekly counselor to talk about this. Or maybe I should, you know, just something other than just a typical med management meeting and moving on with life. Again, especially when the family started contacting Dr. Ashby. So one of the ways that you can protect yourself from liability is to periodically review your your files and find the ones that are still open and and among those that are still open find the ones that you haven't seen the client in a while and consider officially terminating with them now with many clients it's not a problem to begin with because with with most clients they they don't have homicidal ideation they've never had homicidal ideation and they're not highly symptomatic of, of anything. You know, the clients that I see, for example, are are so high functioning, shall we say, that there's really no worry about any of that kind of stuff. And so therefore, for me, it's in the, the current clients that I have, it's just not something that I need to worry about. But if you're a psychiatrist, absolutely. If you're a hospital, absolutely. If you're working with people with these kinds of diagnoses: bipolar, schizophrenia, um, you know, psychosis of other kinds. The not that these people are prone to violence, but they they are prone to wide ranges of symptom, uh, you know, intensities. And um, you just you just need you know, eating disorders have a pretty high fight fatality rate, and you just need to be thinking about that. You need to be thinking about whether or not you need to be terminating with your clients and whether or not you're doing your duty, right? On the other hand, if you're like me and your clients almost never indicate suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation and have never been in a even a fist fight with anybody and there's no... Uh, violence in the home and there's no anything like that then because you know that's the key here is that because for me when i heard about vogue at first i'm like oh my god this terrifies me but after talking with experts they're like look if there's no foreseeable harm to the public then and then it's okay you know all you have to do is if you have data to indicate foreseeable harm then that initiates your duty to protect the public but if there's no foreseeable data, if there's no data to present foreseeable harm to the public, then your duty isn't initiated. You know, your duty to protect the public doesn't come into play. And so that's a that's, that was very soothing to me because because I did a quick inventory of all my clients. And I'm like, oh, I, I can't remember the last time I had a client who presented data to me that would make it so that I foresaw harm happening. Uh, The last client I can even think about off the top of my head was like 10 years ago and he was an actual harm to the public and he ended up becoming uh, arrested and, you know, detained and all that kind of stuff. And, and so, um, and when I look back at that situation, it makes me wonder if I had done enough and I I'm, I'm guessing I didn't actually, because again, I didn't know about Peterson. I was falling terrorists off. If I knew more about Peterson, I looking back probably should have done more. Now, nothing happened uh, of, of, you know, severe enough harm to anyone else that um, I would have been sued or anything is my guess. But, but it, it depends on the kind of client and, and, You clinicians out there know the kinds of clients I'm talking about, at least I hope you do. Now, what this does, what the Peterson standard does, is it puts a tremendous burden, I think, on people who treat the most marginalized groups of people, which are people who are suffering from what we call severe mental illness. I mean, it's already hard enough working with psychotic clients, right? And now you have this additional responsibility that a lot of other counselors and therapists don't have, you know, like I don't have because of the nature of the clients that I see. Okay. So where's the threshold exactly? You know, what, what constitutes foreseeable threat to the public? Is it just having a gun and being an angry guy? Is it being psychotic and having a history of car accidents? Is it, having severe alcoholism and having a car, you know, what, what it, where's the line? It's a really hard thing to figure out. And we don't have a lot of guidance on that. Now what HIPAA, so HIPAA actually has language regarding when we may violate confidentiality. We don't have to, but we may violate confidentiality when there is a serious and imminent threat imminent danger so that's the language is serious and imminent so it's not just any danger it has to be serious danger now that's a funny word it's still ambiguous but i think most of us can determine that given different scenarios you know if you have a 15 year old kid and he says i'm going to go to school tomorrow and i'm going to punch johnny in the face is that serious harm I think most people would say no. Is it imminent? Yes, because he's going to do it tomorrow. But is it serious? Eh, you know, doesn't see, punching some someone in the face isn't serious? If I, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to stab this. I'm going to stab Johnny, or I'm going to shoot Johnny. Uh, serious, right? I don't think anyone would disagree that stabbing someone or shooting someone is a, is is a serious risk, right? Serious danger is is being uttered here. Imminent is the other word. Now, imminent uh, ha- so if someone says, if, if if you're just like, "Huh, you know, let's say someone comes in and, and they're talking and they're just like, "You know, sometimes I just want to kill someone. i just I just feel like killing someone." <laughs> well, maybe that's not a good example. Um, so let's say that there is ongoing domestic violence between a couple or something. And every now and then they get into a scuffle. Eh, I don't know if I have a good example of this, actually, of, of when imminence would be of an issue. Um, but anyway, the 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 way I've had it told to me from experts is that imminent means like within a couple days, essentially. So if you think, well, I think my client at some point might hurt somebody, but it's not going to happen in the next few days. If, if anything, it'll happen next month or something. Then the, the imminence is not, that, that requirement hasn't been met. And so it has to be serious and imminent. But here's the, here's the problem. In the Voke decision, they didn't use that language. They didn't use language serious or imminent. They just said potential for danger. They just use this phrase, you know, in the court decision, if there's a potential for danger, then your, your, your special relationship dictates you have a duty to protect the public. Well, what is potential for danger? Exactly. Like anyone has a potential for danger. Everybody could danger somebody, you know, could anybody could run over someone in a car. Anybody could get angry and, and, and punch somebody. So what kind of danger are we talking about? And what, what sort of potential are we talking about? And so it's very vague. So we don't really know where that line is. But experts are saying that, in all likelihood, it's it's still that that guide of serious and imminent. It's probably that's probably how the courts are going to see it. Is like it has to be serious and it has to be imminent. Okay. So I said I was going to talk about Senate Bill fifty eight hundred because I talked about it in the previous episode, and this bill was actually was was pushed forward by all of our different psychological or our different uh, uh, professional organizations like the Washington state cycle, Psycholo- which is Washington state psychological organization or association, which is the a- local APA chapter. Um, my professional organization, Washington association of marriage and family therapy, the local uh, association of counselors, so- social workers, they all, uh, you know, had their lobbyists push forward a Senate bill in the state of Washington that basically Rolled us back to Tarasov. So they're saying, look, we need to pass a law because this vote, de- this Peterson and this vote decision are too vague. We don't, and we don't like it anyway because it basically makes us liable for everyone, which it doesn't, but that's the way it was being interpreted. And so uh, there was this big push. In fact, I wrote to my state senator and was like, yeah, you need to pass this thing. And they, um, they said uh, the, the, the state, the Senate bill, was a bill that was going to make it codified in law that us mental health professionals only have to follow the Terasoft standard, which is utterance in an identifiable victim, and that we're not responsible to protect the public from just like ambiguous uh, threats of danger to people. And it ended up passing. But what I've been told by the experts is that even though this passed, it still doesn't release us from the duty to protect that Peterson and Voke actually established, and so we still have a duty to protect is the point, even though this Senate bill passed anyway. Okay, so let's conclude here. Let's 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 uh, you know, let's summarize and conclude and and figure out what we're supposed to do. Okay, so just to reiterate, we have a duty to confidentiality. Uh, in it's, it's state law in Washington for licensed mental health counselors, clinical social workers, licensed marriage and family therapists, psychologists, and others, is that we, we may not disclose and we may not be compelled to testify about our information that we have from our clients, essentially. But there are exceptions to that confidentiality. And we all know about mandated reporting and that kind of stuff or if we have written authorization from our client. But we also have what they, what has been traditionally called duty to warn, but really we have this duty to protect. And so we, uh, that is informed by Peterson, Invoke, and Tarasov, which is that if the language that I've been given by experts is, to any individual, if the mental health professional reasonably believes that disclosure will avoid or minimize an imminent danger to the health or safety of the individual or any other individual. Um, however, there is no obligation on the part of the provider to disclose. So when, in other words, when we have data that makes us reasonably, reasonably believe that violating confidentiality will Avoid or minimize a serious or imminent danger to the health and safety of our client or anyone else, meaning you know the public at large. Then we may or may not violate confidentiality. So that that's an important part of that is like we're not mandated to report. That's that's very important. Is that if your patient, if your client indicates danger to uh, the public. It's not a mandate you know when 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 we have clients who talk about child abuse, we're mandated to report that there's no there's no debate in our mind we we have to we have to you know we just you know we're mandated call cps let let CPS deal with it but when we have a client who who indicates potential danger to the public or or you know that the general statement of public at large or or to themselves we may or may not have to violate confidentiality. Now, in a best case scenario, I just want to say, as I've talked about in other episodes, you don't have to violate confidentiality at all. You get the client to do it with you. So let's say you have a client who is coming to you and telling you, look, like, let's go back to Dr. Ashby and Jan. And Dr. Ashby, you know, Jan is saying, look, I, my symptoms are getting bad um i don't know what to do i'm getting more suicidal blah blah, blah. doctor let's imagine dr says oh okay so how about you and i work together to try to keep you safe and and other people safe maybe by uh how about you reach out to other people and you tell them uh let's you know, let's 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 get other people involved in this what do you say well since jan is seemingly open to Dr. Ashby at that point anyway, he might've gone along with that. And, and so you don't have to violate confidentiality at all. All you have to do is work with the client and say, look, let's, let's, let's work together on this. You know, um, Now, one thing you can say as a, as a mental health person is, if, if the patient is like, no, I, I don't want to do that. You could say, well, this can happen one of two ways. <laughs> I can either violate your confidentiality, which I really just don't want to do because I don't want you to hate me, Uh, which I might be mandated, which I might have to do given my responsibility to protect the public um, in which I just have to start violating your confidentiality without working with you, or you and I can work together on this and actually um, preserve our relationship here. Which, which one would you like to do? I've had that conversation with clients before and a lot of clients will be like, Oh, well, I guess I'll choose option number two because I'd rather not have you go out and blab about me. I'd rather, I'd rather know what's happening. And so let's you know let's work together on this. So it's, it's a very functional way of dealing with this sort of thing. But anyway, so we have to add to our disclosure statement and our understanding of the law, particularly in Washington State, but maybe even other, in other states as well, because I, I have a feeling this applies to people in other states and we just don't know it yet is we have to add not only duty to warn but we have to broaden that and say you know i may or may not have to violate your confidentiality if you if you indicate enough reasons for me to believe that there's a foreseeable harm to yourself or other people of anybody right now as i say this out loud i'm guessing that some of you actually knew about all this stuff and and i just didn't because <laughs> i've heard people talk in this way Um, anyway. Uh, okay. So what are we supposed to exactly do though? Let's talk about that. So this really can be broken down into three main categories. The, the first thing we need to do as mental health professionals is assess. We need to, as we go through this, think about it in exactly the same way as we think about suicide assessment. We, we all understand that, when it comes to a client who exhibits suicidal thoughts, we have a duty to prevent them from killing themselves. Now, we're not liable if they kill themselves, but we are held negligent if we don't take actions to prevent them from killing themselves. And it's the exact same duty when it comes to homicidal ideation. Once I thought about it that way, and was told by experts that it is that way, I instantly felt much less anxious about this whole Peterson, Vogue Tarasov thing. In that, I feel completely comfortable in the assessment and prevention of risk of suicide. And and I understand that if, a, if I do everything, I, or I do most of what I'm supposed to do to prevent suicide, and a client does end up completing suicide, then... I know that I'm off the hook. I'm not liable. I'm not. I won't be held negligent for that. So it's the same for homicidal ideation, and in some ways, what I think what'll happen is that the exact same protocols and forms and uh, procedures for suicidal ideation will just be also used in homicidal ideation. And I know some people are 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 already doing that. So. So the first thing with suicide and homicidal ideation is to assess. You need to ask questions. You need to gather history because history is a big deal with, with homicide and suicide. History often predicts the future. So if someone is, is talking or having intrusive thoughts of wanting to harm somebody, but they've never actually done anything to anybody else, then you know, that's, that's something to consider. It doesn't mean that they're not going to do it, but it, it is. Uh, on the other hand, if they've had three other assaults with three other spouses, then the chance that they're going to uh, assault a fourth spouse is, is much higher, right? Okay. So history. Also, symptomology. You know, what, what's their current mental state? Also, plan. Do they have a plan? If, if they're just like, ah, sometimes I really just want to get revenge on my ex-wife. And then you say, well, interesting. Okay, well, let's let's talk about that. Let's gather history. Have, have you ever had a plan, an you know, exact plan on how you might get revenge on your ex-wife? Oh, no, I, I've never had a pl- I just have this general feeling of wanting to get revenge. Okay, so whereas if he says... Yeah, well, you know, at times I've I've fantasized about a plan. I, I think about getting a can of gasoline and burning your house down. You know, that's a plan. Okay. Do they have means, similar to suicidal ideation? Does the person with violent or dangerous or do, do they have a means to harm other people? So let's look back at the, the cases we've talked about. With With Jan, yes. Dr. Ashby knew that Jan had guns in the house because the family had informed him. So he had, he had means. Did did um, Larry Knox with his car have means? Yeah, he had a car. Uh, he had a he he, he was a, a dangerous individual with a car. Okay, so so these are all uh, you know. Does the person have means? Uh, okay, and also you could just follow a protocol which I'm hoping one will come out. I'm guessing one might've already come out in terms of, look, if you have homicidal ideation, follow this checklist and you should be okay. And then of course you should document all of this. This is all, this all needs, this assessment, everything the client says needs to be documented. Okay. Number two, the second thing here is consult, 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 right? If you're under supervision, you absolutely have to tell your supervisor about this. If you haven't told your supervisor about this, there's something wrong with you or your supervisor or something. So, if you have a if you have a client who you think is going to harm other people or is a danger, then yeah, you you know, consult with your supervisor, automatic. If you're not under supervision, then find a con- talk talk with a consultant, particularly an expert in these matters. Every one of you should have a go-to person who you know to be an expert on these matters. I do. It's Joe Schaub, my friend. Uh, I will, uh, and have, call him and just ask him, like, uh, so I ran into a situation, you know, what what should I do? And he deftly walks me through it. Every one of you should have someone like that. And if you don't, and you get into a situation like this, there's a tendency to just be like, well, I don't really know anyone to consult with, so I guess I won't consult with anybody. And that's a big mistake, let me tell you. Big mistake. So make sure you network and, and find people. And again, maybe you have to pay for them. Maybe you don't have a friend who knows about, uh, about all this. You have to pay for them. Incidentally, people hire me to do that sometimes. I have supervisees and consultees who, who hire me on an ongoing basis because they have a difficult case that has elements like this. Anyway, you can consult the literature. There's literature out there good literature and there's bad literature, but there's good literature. And also document all of this. When you you can, if you talk with your supervisor, d- document what your supervisor tells you, you can in the in the client file, there's such a thing as a supervision or a consultation note. Okay, number three, Bec- because again, if you don't document any of this, it didn't happen. That's the rule, right? If you didn't document never happened. So make sure you document number three, if you determine a danger to others, consider the following actions. And there's a lot of different actions here. This isn't a, this isn't a comprehensive list, but it's, it's probably a list of most of the things that people would engage in. Okay, number one is a crisis plan. So develop a crisis plan with your client. What to do if risk increases. What, what the family can do if risk, risk increases. Number two establish a strong alliance with the client and get them to uh, be on board with reducing risk. This is very important. And if you did this, it would be a fact. So so these are all things that you could do that might fail, but we'll will cover your own ass. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. So, um, and honestly, we'll reduce the risk, you know. So one of the things you can do is just... Really try to bond with your client, get them on board with trying to reduce risk. You know, try to convince them, look, part of our treatment should focus on reducing your risk of harming other people because no one wants that. So that's that's one thing you can do. Again, document that. Number three, make sure the client knows that they need to talk to, talk to us, particularly you, about their risk status. So it's not enough to just say like, well, you know, he never said anything. You need to try to get them to disclose to you what's going on with them. Number four, continue assessment during sessions. So when you make an assessment, you need to add to your to-do list that every time you meet with them, there has to be some level of assessment that matches the situation. Number five, focus treatment on prevention of violence. For example, talking about Why the client should avoid violence, talking about empathy for other people, talking about how they can avoid legal consequences, talking about other ways they can communicate their feelings and so on. So that's that's something you can do. So as you notice, a lot of these things have nothing to do with violating confidentiality, right? None of these things so far have anything to do with calling the police or warning someone which is what a lot of people go to, right? A lot of us are like, so what? I'm just supposed to call the police at the drop of a hat? I'm just supposed to call if if a client is dangerous? I'm, I'm just supposed to like what but like post a flyer on Facebook saying this client? Like what am like no, that's not what the court is saying. What the court is saying is like that's one of the things you could have done, but there's a lot of things you could have done. And it's not up to the court to tell you as a profession what you're supposed to do. All we know is that you had a duty and you didn't. You clearly didn't do enough to convince us that you knew you had a duty and and that you did something. So when we go back to Doctor Ashby, uh, we think, well, what what was Doctor Ashby supposed to do? I mean, how how was he supposed to know that his client was going to kill his ex fiance when Jan never indicated he was going to kill that person and Jan never had any homicidal ideation? Well, that's not the point. The point is is that there was enough data to indicate at least some risk, maybe not a lot, right? So when we go back to Dr. Ashby, he's like, okay, I have this client here. He has has some suicidal thoughts. He's going through a tough time, increase in symptoms. Seven years ago, he did have an increase in homicidal ideation. He didn't act on that. So there's a chance in this situation that he's going to again have homicidal ideation. I'm not hearing it, but, you know, there's a chance. And, I do know that he has guns, so I don't think he's going to do anything. Pretty sure he's not, but there's a slight indication of risk here. Okay. Which means I need to address that slight indication of risk. Now, what Dr. Ashby could have done was one, just more assessment, more sessions and a greater awareness between the two of them that there's a chance that his homicidal ideation might return. That it doesn't take a lot of it's not it doesn't take a genius to think about that and it doesn't and it doesn't take a lot of effort and it doesn't involve anything scary for us as therapists such as violating confidentiality or calling the police. All it took was just a little awareness on Doctor Ashby's part that eh, there might be a risk. Let's do something and let me document it or let me consult with someone and let me document that. It, we're not talking about massive actions and it's unknown because this never went to trial court and. You know we wouldn't have necessarily known anyway, because Dr. Ashby essentially did nothing um we We don't know what the threshold is, but my guess is is that if Dr. Ashby had just done a few things, few small things, uh, particularly meeting more often with Jan, um, this whole thing could have been not only avoided in terms of helping Jan to not take this action by increasing treatment but also and monitoring for that matter. But also, even if it did happen, would have released Dr. Ashby from any kind of negligence. Okay. Um, number six, warn any foreseeable victims. So this is where the specific Terasoft duty to warn comes into the overall effort of duty to protect. So all the things I'm talking about here are duty to protect actions. We have a duty to protect the public from harm from our clients, And these are all in line with that. And as a small sliver of that is that duty to warn, which is what we all thought we were only responsible for, but it's not true. We're we're responsible for this overall duty to protect. Okay. Number seven, contact the police. Now this is, you know, something that you should only do when necessary. So warning any foreseeable victims and contacting the police and number eight, hospital, you know, getting involuntary hospitalization. These are all, uh, when you think the client is going to seriously and imminently harm themselves or other people, and um, and they're not they're not complying with treatment, right? So, also voluntary hospitalization is another thing to think about, right? That's that's what I always try to go for. Again, I usually say the same thing. I'm like, look, I I I could either force the issue and try to get you involuntarily hospitalized, which is you know not a great situation to be in or you can comply with my situation here and hospitalize yourself and then you have control about where you go and who you go to and all that kind of stuff and and usually clients will take the second option especially if we talk about it for a while number 9 you can contact the county designated mhps which will determine whether or not someone should be involuntarily hospitalized number 10 get the family to take the guns out of the home, get, get the, you know, in other words, get people or yourself to figure out a way to remove the means. If Jan did not have access to guns, could this have been avoided? I would say probably in that usually people have temporary, temporary um, moments where they want to do these sorts of things meaning that if we can just get him through those those periods of time they'll emerge on the other side of that going like wow i was really wanting to like kill her and myself and i'm glad i got through that time without doing it so getting rid of the means can actually be very powerful number 11 increase session frequency so that's a pretty obvious one number 12 increase support system number 13 is contact other professionals and other supportive people. This is something I always do when it comes to stuff like this is you want to The person I always try to figure out is the closest family member. So if it, it might be their spouse, it might be their aunt, it might be their kid their Someone who, you know, will take this seriously and, and has access to the client. So, you might so say you have a twenty five year old woman who is has a lot of suicidal thoughts, and she lives with her mom, her parents. And so you call the mom you you get a consent to call the mom, and you call the mom and you say, "Look, here is the situation. I am really worried about her. I, I think the risk of suicide is is definitely there. It's serious. It, it's imminent. And what I need you to do is, I need you to monitor her for the next you know number of days." Until our next session, and then you turn to the client and you say, "Is this okay? Is it okay if your mom monitors you?" And the client might say, "Yeah, this is not the best thing." And you're just like, "Well, I, I need someone to watch you; otherwise, uh, you know, I'm going to worry." And the client might say, "Oh, okay, fine." And then I and then I turn, you know, I turn to the mom, uh, you know, talk to the mom, turn to the client, I say, "Look, what this also means is you can't be behind closed doors. So there's no locking of the bathroom door." There's no, there's no sitting in your room alone for hours at a time. Uh, what this means is there's a rule in the house now that uh, you either have to leave the door unlocked, or and or try to not ever be alone. Essentially, because when people are alone, their thoughts of suicide and their ability to commit their uh, kill themselves actually goes up. And they're like, okay, so this is all crisis plan stuff. This is getting the client on board. This is contacting other supportive people to monitor. This is a very powerful and effective way of reducing risk. And again, lets you off the hook because you are being extremely proactive about this, right? And if, the, if this hypothetical 25-year-old client ended up killing herself, there's not a lot of family members that are going to blame you for that because you are extremely explicit in, in telling the family that there was a harm there. And then you also tell the mom, if you are worried, if she locks herself in the bathroom, call 911. Or, you know, here's the number for the county designated MHPs. So you give the crisis plan to everybody. And this is a very powerful thing you do. So what Dr. Ashby could have done if he if he knew about Jan's risk of homicide is he could have done a similar thing. He could have got a friend or a family member to to move in with Jan, to keep him non isolated and blah blah blah. Now all of this would have had to have happened before Jan went down the road that he did. And so that's part of it is like, are you assessing, are you asking questions? Are you monitoring this sort of thing? All that kind of stuff. So again, this isn't a violation of confidentiality. This is getting a client to sign a release so that you contact the family. Now if a client refuses to do that, then you can't really do that. But you but, because of the way HIPAA is and the way the law works is you may violate confidentiality if you believe and you have enough reasons to believe that someone is a danger to themselves and others and again, this is all done after consultation number fourteen uh give emergency contact procedures for everyone involved, which I've kind of already talked about number fifteen anticipate anniversary events so this is this is This applies to the uh, to the case, Jan. Although we, you know, anniversary event refers to a lot of different things, but things that don't necessarily happen every year. But one of the accusations of Jan's negligence was that he should have predicted a anniversary quote unquote anniversary reaction. Now it's not a yearly thing. It's but. It's a. He's in a similar situation. He's being dumped by a woman, and the last time this happened was he experienced, you know, significant homicidal ideation. So, so Doctor Ashby should have anticipated that, and um, and factored that in. And then, of course, uh, the last thing is to document all of this stuff, right? Okay, so let's talk about what we need to have in our disclosure statements. An expert told me the following sentence needs to be in our disclosure statements, if it isn't already, because it might actually be, is, I may or may not have to violate the confidential relationship if I learn of a serious and imminent danger to others. So again, I may or may not have to violate the confidential relationship if I learn of a serious and imminent danger to others. So this is consistent with HIPAA, it's consistent with Peterson. We don't know if it's consistent with Vogue because Vogue was never actually decided upon, because remember they settled. But I'm guessing this is this is sufficient language because it's you know consistent with HIPAA and Peterson. Serious and imminent, may or may not have to re- to violate confidentiality. All right, what's the future hold for us? Well, people are talking about Two different things that they think need to happen. And I agree. One is, is that maybe we should be thoughtful about our laws and pass a law that codifies into law and provides very specific guidance for mental health professionals regarding this duty to protect. What does it exactly mean? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice if we had a paragraph in the law that said something like, all mental health professionals licensed in Washington state must, must uh, understand their duty to protect and follow through with their duty to to protect the, uh, the public from foreseeable danger, blah, 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 uh, and take such actions such as blah, 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 blah. Uh, Wouldn't it be nice? So, so that's one thing that people are thinking about doing. What this would do is, Instead of relying on vague language from the Voke Supreme Court and relying on, uh, you know, a little bit less vague language from the Peterson case, wouldn't it be nice if we just had this very distinct law? Um, So that's one thing that I think there's some movement around. The second thing is, is that us as as a profession, we need to actually establish a protocol and a standard of care there isn't one right now we don't really have a strong standard of care when it comes to the 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 duty to protect we have we have one with duty to warn which is a very small subset of the duty to protect but we don't have a a super big protocol about homicidal or or danger to other people and i keep saying homicidal ideation but really i need to expand that to just danger cuz like in the Peterson case with Larry Knox he had no homicidal ideation he was just a dangerous driver right so that had nothing to do with homicidal ideation that was that was just generally dangerous behavior that he had so so we need a protocol s- similar to the homicidal ideation and when i started thinking about it similar to the homicidal ideation i thought man we are very close to being able to establish a clear protocol for us, but we have to do it as a group. And one of the things that this does is it provides guidance for all of us, right? And so all of us don't have to become these like super experts on all this kind of stuff. But the other thing that it does is it protects us from, from negligence because if there is a professional standard and we follow it, then that's like 95% protective of negligence, not completely. But if you follow the established protocol that you've been taught, then how can you be held negligent for that? Now, what the courts might determine is they might say, well, the protocol is wrong. Then, then the courts will say, look, you have to change that protocol. You know, and so that that's a secondary issue. But you, as an individual, if you follow a protocol, then then you're okay. Plus, the protocol will be based on research and and blah blah blah, and will presumably have some effectiveness, right? So, so that's that's the two things. One is is to pass legislation that uh, that you know specifically provides a guideline on what to do. And the second one is, is for us as a profession to get together and establish a protocol. Again, similar to the suicidal ideation protocol. Okay, well, that was a long, deep dive. Uh, if you're still listening to this, uh, pretty cool that you're still with me. Again, just to review what you're supposed to do. Assess, number one. Number two, consult. And then number three, if you, if you determine danger to others, then... Consider my 14 or 15 different action things that you can do. Crisis plan, establish alliance, make sure the client knows they need to tell other people about their risk, um, continue assessing the client session to session, focus treatment on prevention of violence, warn any foreseeable victims, contact the police, hospitalize either involuntary or voluntary, contact the CDMHPs, get the family to get or get the client to get guns out of the house or whatever out of the house, like Dr. Ashby or Dr. Um, Miller at the state hospital with Larry Knox could have called the family and said, look, this guy, when he takes drugs, he drives like a maniac. And so what I need you to do is take away his keys. You know, might might that have released that doctor from negligence, baby, you know, who knows? Um, Increase session frequency, increase support system, contact other professionals and other supportive people, namely family members, and uh, establish emergency contact procedures for everyone involved, not just the client, but also the support system. And, of course, document all three of these things. All right. Thanks for joining me, patrons. Love you so much for being patrons and for listening this long. Let me know what you think. If you're an expert out there and I made a mistake, let me know because I'm always interested in learning. All right, please take care of yourself. Stay out of trouble because you deserve it.